So as Doug and Myrna Dunn come to read the text, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, we're in the book of James, chapter 2. Please follow along and pray as the Word is read. Verses 14 to 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son, Isaac, at the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Thank you for how you feed us. Holy Spirit, how you illuminate the word and you help us to see the things we need to see and understand what we need to understand. And we pray that it would move inside us so deep this morning that it would have to exit. And the exit would be through our hands and feet, not just in our minds, not just in our hearts, not just with our mouths, but indeed the very way we leave this place, the world would take note because of something that has happened in us, changed in us. And that would be the work of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus. Bless us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Thursday, we gather um, as families, friends, to celebrate all the things that we're thankful for. The last few years have been very different for my family since both my parents have gone on to be with the Lord. Still very sweet, just different. That happens in families. Things change. For years as a boy, we went to my mother's house. My granny booze is what we called her. Um, she was a delight. But the real delight of the family gathering was her son, my uncle, Uncle Carol. And I've told you about Uncle Carol. He's the one who would fill a plate or have one of us fill his plate and then had one command, cover the whole thing in gravy, everything, the dessert, the jello, all in gravy. And if you were asked to do that, you felt very honored, especially if it was the second go around. 
more of everything and more gravy. One thing though that I've never told you is that every Thanksgiving, about an hour after we had lunch, he would leave. He drove, and this was in the 70s, uh, a custom van with a mural painted on the side. Fuzzy dice hanging from the rearview mirror. Shag carpet all over, everywhere. It was pretty cool. He would hop in his van, he would be gone about 20 minutes and he would come back. I never really knew where he went until one day I asked him, can I go with you? He looked at me and said, go ask your mom. I did, she said yes. I guess she thought it was safe for a boy to get in a shag carpeted van and go wherever my uncle was gonna take me. So I got in, I was 10, and he took me to the Jesus house. The Jesus house is the place in Oklahoma City that's most known for caring for people who are in need, in real poverty. And like many charitable organizations on Thanksgiving and Christmas, they offer a lot. And my uncle, who was not a Christian, and there were many Christians in my family, would get in his shag carpeted van and drive to the Jesus house. What he was doing was taking food that his mother had made that we had been eating, putting it in a box, carrying it from the kitchen to his van, unannounced, to deliver to these people in need, to the Jesus house. Hunger is a powerful motivator, perhaps the most powerful. When you're hungry, you become fixated on one thing, and that is getting food in your body. And I'm not talking about the kind of hunger that you're going to experience Thursday morning when you begin to smell the fragrant things coming out of the kitchen into whatever house you're at. You're hungry for a feast that's coming, and that's a motivation, but I'm talking about a hunger that's born out of true starvation, a hunger that's born out of we might not have food tonight. We might not be able to feed our children. I'm not sure where we will get milk or bread or bologna. And all over the world, not just Thursday, but even this day, children will die because their parents couldn't get them food or their caregivers couldn't get them food. It happens. You may think that it only happens in third world countries, but it happens here. From 2000 to 2012, the poverty in Dallas rose 41%. We are the third or fourth poorest urban city behind Detroit, Memphis, and Philadelphia. Dallas has the highest child poverty rate among cities larger than one million. Two of every five kids are poor. Larry James, in a quote about our city, said this, it's not acceptable for a city as full of wealth and opportunity as Dallas to be ranked third or fourth poorest. I want to add to that. It is not acceptable for a church that is so full of large congregations in this city, the buckle of the Bible Belt in many ways, with so many influential churches and large churches, Prestonwood, Watermark, The Village, Park City's Baptist, Keep going down the list, and I'm talking about true churches for that statistic to be a reality in our city. It is a black eye 
a sad mark on the church. It is a sad, sad statement that the church appears to be so vibrant, so big, so large, so engaged, and for that many children to be living in poverty and starvation. How could it be? How could it be? It can be because of what James is talking about here. That we as people are tempted to say one thing and then do nothing. Not do something else, but to do nothing. It is the difference between true faith, faith that goes in us, it's so deep, that must exit somewhere. It exits in a way of giving, of loving, of charity, caring, of charity. It has to. Or it's a sign of phoniness. That's really what James is talking about. Look at, with me again at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? He then moves into this illustration. Some debate whether or not it was a real issue in the church or just an illustration about faith and works. I believe it was a real situation because people are part of the church and selfishness is part of people. So I believe James is speaking to a specific thing in this assembly and he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and that doesn't mean just an occasional meal, that means every day lacking that kind of poverty, he says, what good is it if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them things needed for the body, what good is that? Well, it's not good at all. Let's be honest about it. It's mocking the people in pain. When someone needs something to wear in order to survive a cold night and you see the need or I see the need and I say, be warm, that's disgusting. That makes me sick at my stomach. It's phony. It's not real. It is mocking their circumstance and their pain. If someone is hungry and in need of food and you say, good luck, I hope you find something to eat, it's phony, it's mocking, and it's happening all over the city. We might use different phrases, but my friends, and you may disagree with me, I, I don't know how you can, and I'm not inviting a debate. This many people and churches that I've mentioned already that are all larger than ours that proclaim Jesus. This number shouldn't be what it is. It just shouldn't. So why is it? It's a complex problem. It is. Sin is a complex problem. But the Lord gives us the answer. He always does. Here's the problem. In this passage, James is telling the people that they have acknowledged the need but ignored the solution. 
They have acknowledged the need. You see someone who's poorly clothed. You see someone who's hungry, but they have ignored the solution. The solution is that they should give those people in need who are in their midst clothing. They should give those people who are in their midst who have need something to eat. And the church, if the church does what the church is called to do, will become a vibrant place of impact. So much so that the world would be overwhelmed by the goodness that they could see as the church does really the unthinkable. That is go after the poor, love the poor, comfort the poor, care for the poor, invite the poor in, show them hospitality, give of our very selves. But there are reasons why we don't. Here are a few. I trust that you will connect to some of these, maybe not all, as I have. First, the statistics that I read, they just remain as statistics until you see a face, until you have a conversation. But my friends, the statistics are real. They may have variations, but there's poor people in our midst. There's poor people here this morning. There's poor people all around us. And if our faith truly goes deep and it goes wide, it should also go deep and wide outside the doors. And others should be coming in because they've heard this is a place where they can be fed, a place where they can be clothed, a place where they can hear about the good news of Jesus, who's the one who will ultimately meet their ultimate need. But what keeps us from engaging? First, the need seems overwhelming, doesn't it? Where do we begin? When things seem overwhelming, the temptation is to disengage immediately. It just is. What difference will this make? I want to tell you, you, by God's grace and for his glory, can make an enormous difference in a person's life. You, but being used by God, could actually, being used by God, change someone's life for eternity. And if they come into our church and they have needs and they sit next to you and first you don't show favoritism but you show love, they're surprised by that. And then if you move even beyond favoritism, if favoritism fades and suddenly you're entering into a relationship with them, who knows what might happen? And because we have that question, who knows what might happen? We're tempted to not do anything because who knows what might happen? We are uncertain about how much time and how much money this person really needs. How much time am I going to have to give in order really to help this person? Do you ever wonder that? I do. You know, you're not here very often during the week, most of you. You come on Sundays, and you might come to a Bible study or something. You might have a Bible study that meets somewhere else in the city. But you know, poor people enter through the doors of our church every day. Some on a consistent schedule. They have huge needs. You know what I hope? I really don't just hope. I pray, and I'm praying today at four for this, that those people will not just come during the days that we don't gather on Sunday to worship, but they'll come because this will become their church. Because they see a body of believers saying, 
we won't show favoritism. We love that you're here and we want to care for you. But the moment you begin to engage someone in a relationship, the moment that your faith is moving from just, just something you're saying to an actual work that is demonstrating your faith, guess what? You're in for a wild ride. You have no idea how deep this person's needs may go. What a joy. What a joy to find yourself in absolute dependence on the Lord saying, God, I have no idea if I have what it takes to help this person. But the one you're communing with is saying, you know, I know exactly what they need. I know exactly how much you can give. I know actually how I can use you to connect them to other people. It's going to be messy, but I can do it. We keep from a distance, we keep from engaging because so often we're uncertain about how much money will be required and how much time. We wonder, will it make a difference or not? I want to tell you, you just won't know. It might, no, it won't, might, it, it will be messy. They may abuse your generosity. They may fall back into bad patterns and reject good counsel. They may lie to you. They may say, I'm going to use the money to buy milk, and they went and they bought drugs. They may say one thing and do another, or they may say one thing like us and do nothing. It may seem as if we've wasted our time and even wasted our life. Aren't we glad that God doesn't show us the kind of lack of engagement we might show others because they would lie to us, reject us, abuse us? There are many reasons why we don't engage. But I want to tell you the greatest reason why. It's a hunger problem. It's a hunger problem for you and a hunger problem for me. It's a hunger problem in which we don't actually hunger for God and the things of God in a way that moves from just being head knowledge and even head to heart knowledge. We don't hunger for him in such a way where we want to give him all of our lives for the sake of his kingdom extending. We want to give him a part, a portion, but that's not what he calls for. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He wants all of you, and he wants all of me. He wants us to hunger for that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. But the truth is, John Piper says it this way, we have become so satisfied with the good things that we no longer hunger for the great. We have a hunger problem. And when we become satisfied with good things and we see need, we're quick to change the channel. When I'm watching something on TV and I'm moving through to see if there's something else I want to watch and I see a program that's showing the need in the world and it's got the music playing and it's got the kids' faces, click, I don't want to stay, I don't want to see that very long. I want to disengage from that. But the truth is, those faces are in our city. 
And are we as a church willing to change the channel on real faces right here in our city? We can't be. We can't. We need to engage. Dr. Dan McCartney, who recently served at Redeemer Theological Seminary, since retired, has a wonderful commentary on the book of James. I remember when I heard John Piper say this. He said, books don't change people's lives. Paragraphs do. Well, in this commentary on James, and it's written by a brilliant man in a brilliant way. Sometimes, though, commentaries can stay at a pretty high level and you don't really get sometimes to the heart of what's happening. Well, this one's different. And there was a sentence in this particular section of James that he was commenting on that's really stirred me. Here's what he wrote. In speaking about true faith versus phony faith, he says, true faith responds. So let's listen. True faith responds to need to the extent that it is able. True faith responds to need to the extent that it is able. Okay. The only way we could ever respond that way is if we were so hungry for God. If God had so satisfied the deepest longings of our heart that we truly have a faith that says, I want you, God, to use me and all of me any way you want. True faith responds to need to the extent that it is able. Here's why that stirred me. I have not lived most of my Christian life this way. I have seen need, and often there has been more ability in me to do something about that than I've been willing to give. Sometimes financial, sometimes relational, sometimes physical. And I trust that you're like me. And the burden feels heavy. But I want to tell you, that is not where the Lord wants us to stay. You see, if the burden feels heavy and we keep it on ourselves and believe that we've got to do something in order for the Lord to be pleased with us, that is legalism. That is when we are trying to influence how God sees us based on the good works that we do. That is not what James is talking about. What James is talking about is that we begin to get grace in such a way that we know we don't deserve this. And that goes so deep in us that we want to give all of ourselves to him. And so the question that Dr. McCartney asks is, are you responding to need as a church, as members of this church, to the extent that you are able? Now pay attention immediately to what's going on in your soul. It's really important. 
Does the thought, does the thought of responding to need to the extent that you're able excite you? Right now, does that suddenly move inside you to say, that's incredible. The thought of using everything that God's given me to meet the need that I know of and to, to exhaust myself doing that to, to, the, to, to the way in which I'm fully able, does that excite you? Or do you peel back and say, I'm able to do a lot. And you know what? We are. We as people are able to do a lot. We have so much. What's going on in your soul? Does it make you cringe at the thought that he may want more of you than you're willing to give? Well, let me tell you the truth. He always does. And he always will. Because it's good for us. It's good for us to continue to die to ourselves and be willing by his grace and for his glory to give more and more and more away. What's going on in your heart? Something. Listen to how quiet this place is. You know, I think it's interesting that people often say, I just love the book of James. I'm, I hear it all the time. I love James. Sometimes I'm like, why? <laughs> it is hard. I mean, he's calling us out, isn't he? He's saying this is the way it is and this is the way it should be. If you're not living this way, your faith may actually be phony. You might not even really be a believer. What's going on in your heart? This is really important stuff. Chad Scruggs said it a few weeks ago. James is calling us to grow up. It's really easy, my friends, to conform to the pattern of the world. And God calls us not to do that. He calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So let's go back to the beginning. Hunger is a powerful motivator. Hunger will cause people to do the unthinkable. I have a friend who was, so he served in a desert storm. When he joined the Marines, he was well overweight, but they brought him in. They put him in a training regiment to lose weight, which he began to do. He was still a little bit overweight when he went on his first training exercise. They gave them five MREs. MRE stands for Meals Ready to Eat. Some of the soldiers in our body right now are smiling and looking at me. Grateful that's not what they're having for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Meals ready to eat. Meals ready to eat. Open and you consume them. They gave each soldier enough to last the entire exercise, which was a few days. My friend Dwayne, in the first day, ate all of his. They're gone. Three days left. And he's going to starve. Hunger is a powerful motivator. He was a seminary classmate of mine, and he preached this in a sermon. He said, hunger's a powerful motivator. It'll cause you to do the unthinkable. So as his troops were moving along, they came into an urban area in this training exercise, and there were actual trash cans. As the troops moved ahead of him, he lingered back a little bit and went to one. And there he looked inside. He was beginning to think the unthinkable. Now he's beginning to do the unthinkable. And as he swooshes away flies that are everywhere in there, he sees a half-eaten hostess cupcake. You know the kind that 
you used to feed your children. So they have a little squiggly white line, the white stuff in the middle. He picked it up and he said it was as hard as a rock. But he discovered that if you put it in your mouth and just let it set for a little bit, it becomes as moist as it once was when you were a child. Hunger will cause you to do the unthinkable. Okay, so here it is. When faith, which is a gift, moves in us and we begin to have a hunger for God, it will cause us to do the unthinkable. It will cause us, even if we've been a Christian for 70 years, to pause and go, what else can I do? Not because I'm trying to earn God's love, but because he loves me so much. How much more can I give? Should my wife and I rethink the way our finances are structured? Should we rethink our time? Should we re-examine the way we spend our days? Is there anything we should do because he loves us so much? Hunger for God will cause you and me to do the unthinkable. Hunger for God will cause you and me to give more of ourselves than we ever imagined. Hunger for God will cause us to give more money, more time, to seek to connect people, to enter into the unknown, into the awkwardness, into the inconvenience, all for the sake of seeing someone's need met and having the opportunity to extend to them the good news of Jesus Christ. Hunger for God will cause us to do unthinkable things. So let me remind you, in closing, of the definition of extend. You heard it two weeks ago. Now listen. PCPC exists to extend the transforming presence of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. So listen to the word extent. Extend means, one, it's a verb, to cause, to cover a large area, to make something longer or wider. That's what extend means. Second definition, to hold something out to someone, to see someone's need and acknowledge it, but then to not extend something out to them is to ignore it. And that is phony faith. It mocks their pain. To extend means to hold something out to them that they may take it and hold it, be fed, be clothed. The third definition, to exert oneself to the utmost. Legalism is when you think exerting oneself to the utmost is what causes God to accept you. Don't go that route. Seeking to serve God to the utmost because he served you to the utmost. That's motivation by grace. So here it is, vertical. God extends himself to his people, showing us a love that is so wide and so long and so deep and so high. Jesus holds something out to us. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who comes to me 
only through him has eternal life. He's extended it. And Jesus Christ exerted himself to the utmost so that when it was finished, he said it is finished and he died. This city, this state, this country, and this world is dying. And the need for the church to show the faith that James talk, talks about here is beautiful. How do we become this type of church? By admitting we have a hunger problem and asking God to make us hungry. I want so much to have a faith that can never be called phony. I'm thankful for God's grace for showing me moments when it is. And I'm thankful for the privilege of looking out on this body knowing that deep in your heart you believe that all of this is true. What might Jesus do through you? What might he do through us? May we see his glory unveiled as people in real need are touched by his love through us and begin to come through these doors and experience the gospel. Lord Jesus, I trust so much that your Holy Spirit has been present here today. And I trust so much that you are going to go with us and that you're going to press down upon us the beauty of the gospel, making us hunger more and more for you. Oh, Lord, protect us from legalism, but also, Lord, protect us from abusing grace. Protect us from turning the channel, changing the channel too quickly instead of seeing the need that's all around us. Lord, let your love be so deep and wide in us that it exits and extends. It goes broad and it goes deep that others might know you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.